Well, if you have a copy of God's Word there with you, in front of you tonight, um, take it and be turning to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, we've been studying the life of Abraham uh, in our time together during the middle of the week uh, on Wednesday nights. And uh, Abraham is a man who is upheld in Scripture as being an example of what it means to walk by faith. And really along the way, as we've been introduced to his life, as we've walked with Abram, as he's referred to here in these earlier chapters in Genesis, um, we've seen how his faith has grown through the difficult circumstances uh, that take place uh, in his life. And in his grace, God made a promise to Abram uh, by which God chose him as an instrument through whom he would bring blessing to the world. Uh, Abram would have a son. Uh, He would become the father of a great nation. And really the remarkable thing is that God made this promise to Abram and his wife uh, when they had no children and were well past the childbearing age. And, and, And really long before the son of promise would ever come, Abram had to wait many, many years and trust that God would honor his word and that God would keep his promises. So in this 15th chapter, we've seen that Abram is given some much needed uh, reassurance from God in the face of fear. And in this chapter, we looked at this really beginning last Wednesday night, but, but Abram is wrestling with fear and even doubt Uh, as far as how God would perform his word. How would God make good on his promise, uh, giving him the land and seeing that he would have a son and all of that. And so Abram is wrestling with his emotions and and, and fear uh, here in this 15th chapter. And really fear is something that all of us can identify with because at various points in life we have to face fear in one way Uh, or another, whether it be in your life physically, uh, over health concerns, uh, relationally, uh, whether it be the uncertainty of of what might be going on in the world around us. And we know that the scripture says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And so fear is really the opposite of the the kind of faith that God has called Abram to live by. And so in the previous chapter, back in chapter 14, Abram's faith is kicked into high gear whenever he goes out uh, to battle against the kings that had taken his nephew Lot and Lot's family captive. Uh, Fear could have kept Abram sidelined, but he's drawn into the midst of conflict. Uh, He's a man on the move. He's led by faith. And as he faces his fair share of fear and now the potential of having enemies in the land that God had brought him to, we find out that his faith is only strengthened through the process. And so really, we looked at the last six verses of this 15th chapter last Wednesday night, and uh, I showed you how Abram really is given a word from God to soothe his fears because the chapter begins Uh, with the word of the Lord coming to Abram in a vision. And God says to him, fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. 
Uh, regardless of what you may feel, regardless of what circumstances may be telling you, you need to know that I am your shield, I'm your defense, and I'm going to make good on my promise. So he's given a word to soothe his fear. He's then given a promise from God to strengthen his faith. Abram's asking God the question here in chapter 15, you know, Lord, you've said I'm going to be the father of a great nation, and um, this land, is, uh, my, my, my descendants will inherit all of this land, yet I don't have a child or a son of my own. And so God then gives him this promise and, and really reaffirms the promise that God had given earlier uh, that his very own son, who comes from his own body, would be his heir. And ultimately, immediate, the immediate fulfillment of that promise is Isaac, the son of promise. But the ultimate fulfillment of that promise would be the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of Abraham. And then uh, the last thing we noticed, really from verse uh, 5 and 6, is that Abram's also given a sign to really secure his faith. God gives him a tangible sign something that he could look to and be reminded of the faithfulness of God to honor his word. And he says, Abram, you just need to look up, look toward the heavens. And he says, try to number the stars. And, and you try to count the number of, the, of stars in the sky, that's how many descendants that you're going to have. And so whenever Abram would be faced with doubt, whenever he would be faced with sleepless nights of wondering how God would perform his promise, all he had to do was go outside of his tent and look up at the nighttime sky and try to count the number of the stars. And it gave him a tangible sign of the promise that God had made to him. And really verse 6 in this 15th chapter is such a crucial, vital, important verse in the Old Testament. And, and it's the seedbed for all gospel truth that we find in the New Testament. Because the Bible says that Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 4 and 5 uh, talks about how salvation is by grace through faith. And that we're not saved by any merit of our own. Um, it's not our works that earn us a spot in heaven, but that Abram believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness, and as believers, uh, we believe the gospel, we believe Christ. In faith, we place all of our faith and all of our trust in Jesus Christ, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. He paid the price for our sin on the cross so that the righteousness of Christ could be deposited into our account, and it's received by faith. Well, I want to just draw your attention to three additional things from this 15th chapter uh, as we begin looking there in verse number 7. So follow with me. Uh, I want to begin reading in verse number 7 because the conversation between Abram and God goes on. Uh, the Lord says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I am to possess it? So he's asking God a question here. Uh, Lord, how, how can I really know with certainty that I'm to possess this land? I've been living in a tent. 
uh, you know, the Canaanites are in the land. How am I to really know that I'm going to possess the land? Now, he's not asking this question in unbelief. But it's really the same type of question that Mary would ask all of those many years in the future when, when the angel tells her that she's going to have a son uh, who's going to be the savior of the world. She says, how am I going to conceive being that I'm a virgin? So it's not a question that's asked out of a sense of unbelief, but it's a question that's asked as Abram is really trying to grapple with the promise of God. How is it possible that I'm going to have descendants? I don't even have a son, and you're making all of these promises to me. Well, verse 9, notice what God tells him to do here. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now think about that. Uh, God's going to keep Israel and, and the descendants of Abraham in Egypt for 400 years before he brings them out through the Exodus. Moses leads them. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua eventually leads them back into the land, uh, the fourth generation. And then Israel becomes an instrument of judgment on the Amorites and the Canaanites who had occupied the land. And a lot of people will look to the Old Testament and say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is sort of a a vicious kind of a God who would uh, call for the annihilation of certain peoples, a genocidal kind of a God. But what they don't realize is that for more than four centuries, God gave the Amorites and the Canaanites ample opportunity to repent of their sin. And let me just tell you tonight, folks, if you don't think that, that God, God has not changed all these years, be not, don't be deceived. The law of the harvest, Galatians says this, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And so when we sow seeds of disobedience and rebellion as a culture against God, don't be, don't be deceived into thinking that God's going to turn a blind eye to sin. It, it, may, take, it may take a while. I've heard it said that the mills of God, they grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. So, the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. Now, verse 17 says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, think of the imagery here. It's the same imagery that we're going to see later on as Israel's being brought out of Egypt in the Exodus with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that leads, God, that leads God's people. It's the manifest presence of God. 
So, so here is God uh, appearing in, in just a, uh, an awesome form here, verse 17. And on that day, the Bible says that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenite, Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites, and I'm pretty sure the mosquito bites are in there somewhere too, okay? But what I want you to see in this passage is that the promises of God that have been made, the promise that God makes to Abram all the way back in chapter 12, that promise is officially being ratified through a covenant process. God is establishing a covenant with Abram. And so I want to speak to you for just a few minutes from this subject tonight, the God of covenant. What does it mean uh, when the scripture says that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God? Why is that important? Why was it important for Abram? And why is it important for us? So I want to just draw your attention to three things as we look at this. All right? To begin with, notice that it involves the affirmation of God's promise. When God is establishing this covenant with Abram here, what God is doing, he's giving Abram affirmation of the promises that he has made to Abram all along. And this is what he's doing here in verses 7 through 11. God had promised that the land of Canaan would belong to he and his descendants. And so now God is reaffirming that and giving Abram the assurance that his promise is so. And he reminds Abram of the promise that he made him all the way back when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans more than a decade prior to this, okay? God brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and promised to give him the land that he was now living in. And someone says, well, why is the land such a big deal? Well, the land was an important part of the covenant that God had established with Abram. And the land would really serve as the stage upon which God would bring salvation blessing to the world. God promised to give the land of Israel to Abram and Abram's descendants. And so that land would then become the, the stage, center stage upon which many, many, many years into the future, the Son of God himself would enter the world. And, and he would secure the redemption the salvation of those who trust in him. So this is all part of this covenant that God is establishing with Abram here in this passage. Now, when it came to significant covenants in those days, uh, those that were involved in a covenant process, they took part in this elaborate ceremony that involved the sacrifice of an animal or multiple animals, as in the case here with God's covenant with Abram. And so from this came the expression in Hebrew to cut a covenant. Yeah, we see this the way that God is affirming, affirming his covenant with Abram. He has Abram select certain animals, cut those animals in half, and it's a gory kind of a thing. Blood is shed. But then those animals, their carcasses had to be arranged in pieces. And the both halves of the, the sacrificial animal had to be separated, and then often the parties involved in making the covenant would, would walk among those pieces, and it was a symbolic way of saying, so shall it also happen to me if I fail 
to live up to the obligations of this covenant. And that's how they would enter into an agreement. Now things are totally different now because today our agreements are preserved with ink and paper and you get a notary public to sign it and all of that's kept in the courthouse or somewhere on, 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 uh, in a file, that kind of thing. But not in Abram's day, not in ancient cultures. Uh, a significant agreement, uh, there was a, a covenant that was cut and it involved this gory, bloody process. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But if you've got your Bible in front of you, flip back to chapter 12 for just a minute. And I want you to look at the original promise that God had made to Abram, uh, even when he was back in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, Genesis 12:1, the Lord says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the original promise then that God makes to Abram. There are personal implications. Uh, Abram is going to be personally blessed by God. And he's blessed in order uh, for him to uh, be a blessing. So it's God in his grace who is doing something. Uh, he, is, he is choosing Abram, uh, and Abram is going to become an instrument of blessing. There are personal implications. Um, there are national or ethnic implications. The promise involved that Abram would become the father of a new nation. And given enough time as this plan would unfold, the nation that would come from Abram would become the means by which the whole world might hear the truth of the one true God and, and hear of how he has worked in real time to rescue humanity from the curse of sin. So in that way, there are global implications then in this covenant promise that God makes to Abram. God's going to bring blessing, not just to Abram personally, not just to Abram's descendants, uh, ethnic Israel, nationally, but globally, the whole world would be a recipient of the blessing that would come through Abram and Abraham. If you're saved tonight, you're a recipient of the covenant blessing that's come through Abram. Because God chooses this man from which there will come a great nation, the nation of Israel, through whom God is going to reveal his word through the prophets and later the apostles. But ultimately, uh, God is going to bring blessing into the world through Israel because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, God incarnate is going to be born, is going to step into our world of brokenness and is going to live a perfect life in every way, and yet he's going to go to the cross to suffer and die for my sin and for your sin. And so now, the whole world has opportunity uh, to, to be saved. I know that the Bible teaches that God has secured the salvation of his own, but I am so glad that the gospel is good news for whosoever's all because of the promises of God and what God has done through Abram. So if you're not saved tonight, uh, maybe you're on the fence, let me just encourage you. Uh, as, as perhaps the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction to your heart, you know you're a sinner and you've transgressed the law of God, 
I urge you, don't rely upon your own effort and your own good works and your own moral standing before God because you don't have one. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says in Isaiah 64 that my righteousness, at very best, it's like a filthy rag. I've got to have Savior righteousness. And that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what the promise that God makes to Abram involves. And really, you see how how the details of this unfold down through uh, the centuries that would follow all the way uh, as we get to the threshold of the New Testament. So that's why Jesus could tell the religious leaders in Israel what he did in John 8, 56. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad because he knew this was the promise that, that God made to him. This is why Paul says that this was the same gospel that he preached. Um, he says in Galatians 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that's the promise. And Abram is is given Uh, some much-needed reassurance and assurance uh, of the promises of God. Now, there's a second thing here in Genesis chapter 15. You go back to chapter 15, I want you to see, and it's this. Uh, This covenant promise would also involve affliction for God's people. Not only is there some assurance given to Abram, uh, of the promise of God, but this, this covenant involved some affliction uh, that would be experienced in the lives of Abram's descendants. Okay, so, so after this elaborate ceremony of, of, of cutting the pieces of these sacrificial animals, uh, they're, they're laid in pieces, uh, there's, there's several hours that transpire, Abram falls into a deep sleep, And the Lord speaks into his life and tells him, he says, you need to know something. You need to know that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Uh, They're going to become servants there in that land, and that land would become a land of affliction for them. Now, we know that this happened. Uh, This is fulfilled to a T because, uh, you you know, many years after, Jacob and his sons would relocate to Egypt out of a famine. Joseph would provide for them there in Egypt. They would begin to grow in number. And uh, another Pharaoh comes into power, we're told in Exodus, who didn't know Joseph and all that Joseph had done for the Egyptians. And so what that Pharaoh does is that he enslaves the Israelites. And the Egyptians make the Israelites their slaves. And they remain in Egypt for 400 years. Now, folks, think about this. That's almost twice as long as we have been a nation, the United States. Nearly almost twice as long as we've been a nation, the Israelites were in bondage there in Egypt. Even though God has promised that he's going to bring blessing to the world through the descendants of Abraham. Even though this is God's chosen people. Even though these are... uh, Uh, the very ones that God is going to bring blessing into the world through, they're having to experience their fair share of affliction, and it lasts for some 400 years. Uh, 
Yet God promises that he's going to bring judgment on the nation that holds them captive. He's going to judge the Egyptians. And the Israelites are going to come out uh, with, with great possessions. And we know that that happened in the Exodus as God poured out ten plagues and judged the false gods of Egypt. It took Egypt down into the dust and he brought his people out with an outstretched hand, with a mighty arm, proving that he is the God of salvation. So here, here's what I want you to see with this. Even though God had promised Abram that his descendants would be a great nation, it didn't mean that their lives would be free from affliction and pain. But God would use the affliction uh, as a furnace to refine their faith. Uh, and maybe the imagery of a smoking fire pot here in chapter 15, perhaps that's just a picture of the suffering that precedes the light of glory. And this is the way that God always works to bring blessing into our lives. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul, what he and Barnabas uh, tells the church in Antioch there in Acts chapter 14 after a, a season of ministry, Paul had been nearly stoned to death. Uh, he had been attacked for the gospel that he had preached, nearly, nearly killed. But he comes right back around and encourages the believers, uh, strengthening the souls of the, the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the pain of affliction, it's all part of the process that God uses in our lives to refine our faith. In God's economy, suffering always precedes glory. The cross always comes before the crown. This is how God works. It's how he's brought blessing to the lives of men like uh, Abraham. It's how he's worked in the life of even David, the man after his own heart. I mean, David is pursued by Saul, and, 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 and David has enemies. David knows the furnace of affliction, but God's using it as all part of the process to refine his faith and to bring about his purposes in David's life. This is why Peter tells believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The word that he uses there in that verse, uh, oligos, it's a Greek word that refers to a temporary period of time. Uh, you've been, in this you rejoice, though for a little while. Oligos, you've been grieved by various trials. It's his way of saying that the trials are short-lived. The affliction is short-lived. He's saying that compared to eternity and what we have to look forward to as those who trust in Jesus Christ, the trials, the affliction that we go through in the life of faith are barely a bleep on the radar. And the problem with trials from our perspective is that they're permanent and they're unending, which really isn't true. Now let me tell you, 400 years of affliction is a long time. Some people uh, in, who are God's chosen people would be born in slavery and would die in slavery. All they had to go on was the promise of God during that painful ordeal. But God keeps his promises. Doesn't always work according to my timetable. Doesn't always work according to your timetable. But he always works according to his own timetable. That's why Paul could say that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us 
It's doing something in us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to that which is unseen. The things that are seen are transient, like a, like a shadow. Here one minute, gone the next. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, the world we live in now is full of all kinds of, of, of hardship and chaos and all kinds of difficulty that would grieve our hearts as people of faith, but it's light momentary affliction. We don't look to the things that are seen. As those who've been given the promises of God in Jesus Christ, we look to that which is unseen. So affliction then for God's people. The covenant promise that God makes to Abram, it does involve affliction, but God would use it to bring about his ultimate objective and his purposes. The purposes of God will not fail, even though it often means pain for me and you. Now, there's a third thing that I want you to see, and it's simply this, um, assurance in God's presence. Abram is given, in this covenant promise from God, he's given affirmation of the promise, It involves affliction for God's people, but notice something about the assurance that comes from God's manifest presence. We're told there in verse 17 that when the sun had gone down and it became dark, that behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of that covenant sacrifice. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Let me come back to this covenant ceremony that I was talking about just a moment ago, uh, where the death of an animal that was cut in pieces and those pieces were arranged, uh, it involved the binding of two parties to a promise. And the persons making the covenant would make the sacrifice, divide the carcasses, placing the halves opposite each other on the ground. And then those two parties entering into this covenant agreement, they would walk between those pieces of sacrifice as a way of declaring that if they failed to keep their end of the covenant, if they failed to keep their word, they deserve the same fate as the animals. But I want you to notice what happens with Abram here. He has the animals slaughtered, blood has been shed, the pieces are arranged, but when the sun sets, he falls into a sleep, and God himself appears in the form of a smoking fire pot and flaming torch, and it's God himself who's passing through the pieces of the sacrifice. And why is that important? Because it's all a picture of God's unconditional promise. God is establishing an unconditional covenant with Abram here in this passage. It's not a conditional covenant that's, con, you know, that's, that's sort of contingent upon Abram living up to a certain level of expectations before God's going to, God's not just meeting him halfway here. God is coming all the way. God is identifying with the sacrifice himself so that he can establish in an unconditional way this covenant with Abraham. And folks, it is a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It points us to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the only sacrifice that atones for sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that ratifies the new covenant. An unconditional covenant. 
That's why Jesus, uh, when he observed the Last Supper with his disciples, Matthew 26, uh, says that he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And here's what he said. He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, uh, which is poured out for many for the transgression or for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus well understood that his death upon the cross, his blood would be what ratifies the new covenant. And now because Jesus has died in my place and in your place upon the cross, that means now the way of access to God has been opened up for us. And it means that the life of Christ now comes to live within us as believers. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been given. The character and the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given. And it's all possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So the sacrificial animals here in Genesis 15, their blood is shed as God ratifies his covenant with Abram in an unconditional way. This is a picture of Jesus Christ who is our perfect and ultimate sacrifice. And our deliverance from the power of sin is based upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as our substitute. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they had no power to free a person from the grip of sin. That never was their point. But they were object lessons. And later on, Israel is even going to be given a system that involved sacrifice all of the time, blood being shed. And it all was an object lesson. You know, it's like uh, your children, you know, when they're coming through the earliest grades in, in school and they're learning how to read. And often they're given these, these, these uh, traceable patterns where they trace letters so that they can learn how to read and write for themselves. They may not realize what they're doing at the time, but what it's reinforcing in their little minds is this is an L, or this is a T, or this is an R, and they're tracing that and learning how to write. That's what God does all throughout the Old Testament with animal sacrifice, with the blood of sacrifice. It's as if God is teaching his people in an infant stage your sin, listen, a steep price has to be paid in order for your sin to be atoned for. You can't keep my law. You can't live with uh, sinless perfection. But you see, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish an unconditional covenant by which I myself identify with the sacrifice that's necessary in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be forgiven, in order for you to have my life. It's almost as if God is giving his people little letters that they can trace in the Old Testament that involve sacrificial death of animals, blood being spilled, because it ultimately points to the one sacrifice that does take away sin forever, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so all of this is contained in the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, aren't you grateful for that tonight if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Aren't you grateful that there is a sufficient sacrifice and a sufficient atonement for sin? And aren't you grateful for a God who's established an unconditional covenant? Salvation is not, it's not me coming halfway, then God coming halfway. No, it's God coming all the way to rescue me out of the depth of sin and brokenness, to give me his life 
and to give me the righteousness of his son. And if you don't know him tonight, let me just encourage you right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will save you. Lord, with grateful hearts tonight, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the promises of God, which the scripture says, find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abram doesn't understand how all of this is going to come together in his life and in the generations that would follow. But the scripture says that he simply believes the Lord and the Lord counts it to him as righteousness. Same thing's true in our lives, Lord. We believe Christ. We believe that Christ died for our sins and confess him as our Lord. And the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account as believers. Lord, thank you for being a God who keeps your word and keeps your promises. Lord, if it was left up to us, we, we couldn't save ourselves. We're imperfect. Sin is far too pervasive. But Lord, you have done all that is necessary for us to enter into salvation, blessing, and to have your life. And so we praise you tonight. We thank you. And Lord, this is good news that we need to announce to our neighbors. And that's what evangelism is. Lord, it's, it's the news of what God has done to save fallen, lost, broken humanity through the person of his son, Jesus. So, Lord, through the pain, through the affliction of our lives, we realize, Lord, that you're refining our faith. We look to you in faith. We trust you. Conform us as believers into the image of your son, Jesus. This is our prayer. And, Lord, thank you for the example of Abram, a man who's going to learn over and over again multiple times in his life that faith is forged on the anvil of adversity. So, Lord, as those who trust in you, may we ever walk by faith, not by sight, not by fear, not by looking around at the world around us, but looking to you, placing all of our hope, all of our confidence in the promises of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.